Well, good morning. You can start heading back to your seats as we're going to get started later on in the service. We're going to be able to have communion together as a church family. We're going to have a time of worship through song at the end. And so we're going to have the message right at this point earlier in the service. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning right now to 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we're going to continue on in our series through 1 Timothy and look at another one of the house rules for how the church, how the family of God functions in this world. We're going to go through 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17 and going through verse 25. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be up here on the screen because we're going to begin by reading through the passage together. So I'll read for us 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. The elders who direct the, the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine for your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. This is God's Word. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we pray that you open our eyes and that you open our hearts to what it is that you have to say for us through this passage. I pray that you lead each one of us. I pray that you have a word that speaks to each one of us today, and I pray that you bring it to bear on our hearts and on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is a storyline in the TV show, The West Wing. There was a show during the early 2000s, um, and it was about the White House. It was about the president, and there was a storyline where the president's daughter was kidnapped and a couple of staff members were talking in the midst of this and in the chaos of what was going on. And one of the staff members just sort of said matter-of-factly, well, right now, the president can't make decisions based on the fact that he's a father. He has to make decisions based on the fact that he's the president. He has to set aside what might be best for his daughter and instead set at the forefront what's the best for the country. And the other staff member responded and said, well, gosh, if you were in that position, do you feel like you could do that? And her response was to say, I wasn't stupid enough to get that job. (laughs) Which to me was really striking. It's a reminder of the presidency specifically. There are certainly great privileges that go along with being the president. But there's also deep burdens. There's also deep, deep difficulties that go along with that role. And in a passage in 1 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy about leaders within the church, one of the powerful things that we're going to see in this passage is that there's a parallel. And the parallel is that Christian leadership is both dignified 
and dangerous. It has both privileges that are wonderful, and it also has burdens that are significant. In fact, in many ways, when we, when we look at this spiritually, we would say being a leader within the family of God, even more than being a leader within the country, it's more dignified and it's also more dangerous. And so the house rule that the Apostle Paul is going to walk Timothy and walk us through with how we function as a church family is that we honor our leaders. And he's going to talk about what this means, some specific ways that we honor our leaders. Now, just to get the bearings for this, this is one of those passages that on the surface, and even as I read through it, some of you might be thinking, all right, this sounds like a great passage that the leaders should get together and just talk about in private. I'm not quite sure why the rest of us need to be here to hear this. Is this just for those who are in leadership and those who are aspiring to leadership? Or is this something that's for every one of us? And what I want you to know is that in many ways, this passage and the instructions of this passage about honoring leaders are actually much more for those who are under leadership than those who are in leadership. In fact, some of you might even be asking in your heads right now, all right, in our world right now, there's a lot of questions about how people should respond to leadership and how people should respond to authority. Um, But what about within the church of Jesus? Should I respond with trust or should I respond with suspicion? And in many ways, what Paul is going to say is yes and yes. In fact, within the church of Jesus, more trust and yet also more suspicion if we as a church family are really going to function in the way God has called us to function. So we're going to walk through the three ways that Paul is going to tell Timothy, here's how you honor your leaders within the church. And the first one is in verses 17 and 18, and this is the most straightforward one. He says, Timothy, we honor our leaders through appreciation. So that's pretty straightforward. Verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Now, just getting our bearings here. So this is the first mention of elders in 1 Timothy, but some of you will remember that back in chapter 3, Paul talked about overseers. And if you read Titus 1 and you also read Acts 20, you see overseers, elders, it's two words to refer to the same role within the church. Elders slash overseers, this is the highest level of leadership within the church. And you can even hear it in the description here. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well. These are the ones making the ultimate decisions. These are the ones that are entrusted with shepherding the people of God. These are the ones that are in charge of the difficult decisions related to church discipline, related to finances, related to vision of the church. These are the ones visiting sick people. These are the ones agonizing over prayer for needs in the family of God. In fact, some of you will remember back when we went through chapter 3, we had a a sermon uh, up here where I had a couple of the other elders up here and we just talked about what it's like trying to fulfill the calling of being an elder. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have them up there is because I, on a regular basis, get to be around these other elders and hear their hearts for all of you and see their hard work in looking to shepherd and pray over this church family. And so Paul says, the elders who direct the the affairs of the church well, which simply means they're not negligent, they're working hard at this, Those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. And I just want to say, as one of the elders of this church, this passage has started off really good for me. (laughs) 
The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Look at what he says next. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. It just got a lot better for me. Um, And on a serious note, I think what's going on here is that Paul is acknowledging something that certainly is true in our church and is true in most churches around the country, is that all elders are called to be able to teach, but often not every elder has exactly the same gifts or public speaking ability. So, all right, so there's going to be some elders that are going to be up front preaching and teaching a lot, and Paul says, you know what, the elders who are doing their job, the elders who are shepherding and caring for people and praying over people, they are worthy of double honor, especially those who give themselves to the work of preaching and teaching, giving sound doctrine and refuting false teaching. That's the starting point. Now, let's go back so that we understand. He says, worthy of double honor. What does double honor mean? Now, we get a clue for what it means by the next verse, verse 18. In verse 18, he says, for Scripture says, and then he quotes two passages, one from Deuteronomy and one from the Gospel of Luke, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. In other words, if you've got an animal doing the work on the farm, let it eat while it's working. And then much more directly in the Gospel of Luke, the words of Jesus, the worker deserves his wages, which is what Jesus said to the apostles when they were being sent out town to town. He said, go and stay with people who are willing to house you and don't feel bad about the fact that they're housing you and feeding you. The worker deserves his wages. So in Deuteronomy, it's a roundabout way of saying it. And then in Luke, it's a much more straightforward way of saying it, is that, all right, we're, we're, we're part of a church family. We're all equal within the church family. We all have equal access to God. We're all brothers and sisters. In the New Testament, we don't have a priesthood in the way that they did in the Old Testament. We're all equal. And because of all being equal, the question might come up of like, well, should we even pay anybody? Because we're all equal. We don't need these people as priests. And Paul is saying, no, there's going to be some people that give extra time and focus and give themselves to the leadership of the church, and those people should be paid. That's part of the double honor. And the other part of the double honor, he's probably not saying they need to be paid twice as much. He's probably just saying they should be paid and they should be treated with honor. They should be treated with appreciation. They should be treated with respect. They're people that are praying over the congregation. They're people that are caring about their souls. They're people who are shepherding, looking to track down the different dangers and difficulties that the people of God are facing. Saying, you know what? In all kinds of places in the world, there are leaders who are given appreciation. And you know what? Within the church of Jesus, so much more should this be true. We honor our leaders through appreciation. Now, now, let me talk about how this ties in. So, um, I, I'm a Laker fan, especially now that the Dodgers lost. I'm focused on being a Laker fan. Um, I, I have a, a recording of the 2001, the last game of the 2001 NBA Finals, when the Lakers beat the 76ers, back in the Shaq and Kobe days. And uh, every so often, I love to break that out and watch that game. It's game five. They're on the road in Philadelphia, and they win the championship. The game doesn't even end up being very close. It's great to watch, first of all, and most importantly, because I get to watch the Lakers win a championship anytime I want to. Um, But the second reason why it's great to watch is because something unique happens in the stadium in Philadelphia at the end of the game. The 76er season obviously isn't ending the way that they would want it to end. They're about to end in defeat. 
And yet in the last minute of the game, the coach for the 76ers calls timeouts to one by one take his starters out of the game. And each time he takes one of the starters out of the game, the crowd bursts into uproarious applause for these players as they exit. And as the final moments are ticking off the clock for the game to end, for their team about to lose and the Lakers about to win, every person in the stadium stands and claps. Not for the Lakers, but for their beloved 76ers, even in defeat, giving such an amazing effort. Now, here's the deal. You could look at that and you could say, the fact that there was that kind of applause says something about the players. But what I would say is, the fact that there was that kind of applause says something about the fans. It says something about their character, that they had that kind of appreciation for their players even in defeat. Now, here's the deal. That's a situation where the people who are cheering, they don't know the players. They don't have personal relationships with them. They haven't benefited in some profound way from them, and yet they're giving them that kind of appreciation. How much more should that be the case in the family of God? Say, man, we have leaders that are caring about our souls. We have leaders that are praying for us. We have leaders that are willing to take time to come and visit with us and care for us about sickness, to make sure that we're getting to the right spot, getting into the right groups, getting the right kind of support. How much more for the church, should the church of Jesus be marked by the appreciation of leaders? Because you might look at that and say, well, well, that's, that's kind of self-interested for you, Dan. You're up there as one of the leaders. You're basically telling us to appreciate you. And I'll say two things about it. I'll say, first of all, Karina and I regularly talk about how appreciated in our eight years here we have felt by this church family. I believe it is a mark of this church. In fact, um, a few years ago, I had one of my professors from college come out and guest speak here at a deeper event. And one of the things that he said to us afterwards in, in interacting with a whole bunch of you is he said, these people really love you guys. <laughs> and it was funny because we were like, why is that so shocking to you <laughs> that these people would love us? But so I want you to know, I say this not as somebody that's like, for heaven's sake, I need some respect around here. I don't, I really don't feel that way. But what I want to say is the kind of appreciation that the congregation shows to the leaders says less about the leaders than it does about the congregation. The kind of financial support that you are willing to give in order to support the ministries of the church and also some of the leaders who are getting paid through those offerings says more about your character before God than it does about who the recipients of it are. And Paul says, you know what, when people are looking at this, when I looked at those 76ers fans, I was like, man, I admire them. How powerful for people to look at the ministry and the body of the local church and say, wow, those people honor their leaders. Those people appreciate their leaders. There's something unique going on there. Paul says we honor our leaders, and the first way that we honor our leaders is through appreciation. And you might think, well, the leaders come off really good here, but wait till the second thing that we see. Because he says, first of all, we honor our leaders through appreciation, but secondly, we honor our leaders through accountability. He says in verse 9, as he transitions to talking about sin that could be happening in the lives of the leaders, he says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. So he's transitioning to the whole idea of like, all right, what if there's sin or what if there's accusation of sin in one of the elders? 
And so he says, all right, well, well, the first deal is this. Don't entertain an accusation unless it's brought by at least two or three witnesses. And this goes back. This is not something that Paul is making up here. This goes back to the Old Testament. That's the way things worked in the legal system in the Old Testament, not only with leaders, but with everyone. It was sort of their version of innocent until proven guilty. Way of saying it. an accusation does not automatically equal an indictment. Being accused of something does not automatically equal your guilt. If somebody is going to be accused and convicted of something, there needs to be at least two or three witnesses. And just for clarity, going back to the word entertain, do not entertain an accusation. It could be easy to read that and say, Paul is clearly just trying to protect people. Because he's saying, if somebody comes forward and they don't have other witnesses, don't even listen to him. Dismiss it out of hand. But that's not what it means when he says, do not entertain it. What it really means much more straightforwardly is, do not accept it as fact. This is the same word, the word that's translated to entertain here, is the same word that's used in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, when Jesus tells the parable of the soils. And the way that it's used is at the end of the parable, he talks about the good soil and says the good soil represents the person who hears the word of God and accepts it. In a similar way, he's saying here, you know what, if somebody, if there's an accusation against one of the elders, don't just accept it as fact without more witnesses. And so the presumption here isn't that, like, let's say, for example, somebody comes forward and says, you know, I was at a restaurant last night, and I saw one of the elders there, and he was drinking really heavily, he was being really sloppy, he was, he was clearly drunk, I need to tell you about this. It doesn't mean that the elders then say, hey, unless there were more witnesses, we're not even listening. It means that they would say, okay, we're not going to right away just assume that that's true. We're going to try to find out if there's other witnesses. We're going to try to find out if this really happened. But we're not simply going to remove an elder on the basis of one accusation without corroborating evidence. Now, now in a second, you're going to see where this goes further, because Paul has some strong words about when elders are in sin. But I just want to pause here and say this. Some of you might be listening to this or looking at verse 19 and saying, verse 19 benefits the accused more than it does the accuser. And you're not crazy if you read it that way. It is the presumption of innocence. In fact, I remember, um, I've been on jury duty a lot of times. I've never been chosen for a jury. I don't know that I ever will. Um, You know, pastor, all right, you you can go. (laughs) There's only one time that I even got to the point that I was sort of on a panel of potentially being chosen as a juror and I didn't get chosen. Um, and it was a drunk driving case, and the defense attorney gave this long explanation, was talking about the whole idea, the burden of proof is on the prosecution, innocent until proven guilty. And then he said to us, that means in our legal system, we would rather have a guilty person go free than an innocent person end up in jail. And so he said, because of our legal system, we accept the idea that sometimes there are going to be guilty people that go free. And then he turned to all of us as jurors and he said, are you okay with that? And here's the deal. I knew what he was asking. I knew what he was asking is, are you willing to function within that legal system? And the answer was yes. But in my head, when he said, guilty people are going free, are you okay with that? I was thinking, of course I'm not okay with that. Are you kidding me? That's terrible. That shouldn't happen. And if there's a way to avoid it, we should avoid it. Ultimately, some of you are probably having that gut reaction right now. And maybe it's because you've been wronged in some way by a church leader or by somebody else. 
and they didn't experience consequences because there just wasn't enough evidence. Sometimes there's not two or three witnesses. So if you're listening to this and say, oh, this, this just isn't right, I have a problem here, I, I want to invite you to hold on to that because at the end of this passage, at the end of this chapter, Paul's going to say something that I believe really powerfully addresses that concern. But he starts with verse 19, and verse 19 could kind of sound like, all right, old boys club, protect your own, make sure nobody ends up getting taken down. He says, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But it gets much worse for elders after that verse, because in verse 20 he says, but those elders who are sitting, you are to reprove before everyone. It's not simply a private rebuke. It's not simply a private correction those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others, and in this case, probably the other elders, so that the others may take warning. So the other elders are saying, it's dangerous to get caught in sin. Now, just a note on this, when he says, those elders who are sinning, you can say, well, this is difficult because all of us sin, all of us stumble, and so is he really saying here, any time that an elder sins in any way, it's going to result in a public reproof? I think almost certainly that's not what he's saying. In fact, when he says the words, those who are sinning, this is something that's used not just here in this passage, but at multiple times in the New Testament that seems to be referring to ongoing sin patterns. Not just the idea that there is a slip up, not just the idea that an elder has to get up here and confess before everyone. If there was one time that somebody cut him off on the freeway and he kind of made a snarky remark under his breath and then confessed before God, I shouldn't have said that. But if it turns out that that one elder who was seen at the restaurant was getting drunk and had in an ongoing way been getting drunk and abusing alcohol, that would need to be dealt with in some kind of a public way for a couple of reasons. First of all, the reason that it says right here so that the others can take warning at this, and also because you don't want the congregation to be confused if it's never dealt with from up front, and maybe the elders repent. Maybe it's not even something where you've got to rail somebody out. Maybe the elder is saying, I got caught in this, and I'm very sorry. I'm working on it right now. Here's what I'm doing. Maybe the elder's being removed from being an elder. Maybe he's not, depending on the circumstances. The idea is saying, we don't want the congregation to say, well, we constantly see our elders going out and getting drunk. Maybe that's okay. It needs to be dealt with in some kind of a public way. And just as a note on this, there are times that churches do this, but usually by the time it gets to this point, the elder who would be rebuked publicly is long gone, has just run away from the situation because there's too much humiliation going along with that. Now look at verse 21, because in verse 21, Paul gets intense about the subject. He says, Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. He's painting a picture of witnesses watching this command he's about to give Timothy. Timothy, I'm giving you this charge. God is watching. Jesus is watching. The angels are watching. And I charge you to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Partiality is prejudging. Favoritism, we all know, is the idea of playing favorites. So here's what he seems to be saying to Timothy. Timothy, there's going to be some times where you're tempted to prejudge because somebody comes to you and accuses an elder of something and you think, I don't like that elder anyway. I've always felt like he's kind of sketchy. I'm sure you're right. And then other times, somebody might come with an accusation against the elder 
And Timothy is thinking, that elder's my boy. That's my closest friend. There's no way. I'm not even going to listen to this. He says, don't prejudge one way or another. Wait for the evidence to come out. Listen to the witnesses. Figure out what's going on here. And don't play favorites. Don't overprotect the congregants and don't overprotect the elders. Take this seriously. Don't play favorites when it comes to this. I'll even say, because as I'm describing this, some of you might be thinking, all right, well, this sounds like this is something elders are supposed to sort of take care of. It doesn't sound like something that I'm supposed to do as a congregation member. But let me just say, as a congregation member, one of the things that goes along with this is that if you see something and you're kind of thinking, well, that seems sketchy, that seems strange, that seems concerning, but I'm supposed to respect my elders, so maybe I just shouldn't say anything. I think what Paul's pointing towards is, no, say something. It might turn out that you mistook the situation. It might turn out that it wasn't what you thought it was. In fact, there was a funny thing a few years ago where, uh, where there was a congregation member who said, uh, he said, Dan, uh, last week I was watching you between services. You were out front, and I saw you went up, and you kind of put your arm around this woman, like maybe a little bit too cozy, um, and then you gave her a kiss. It was like, and then I assumed that was your wife, and he was right. It was my wife. <laughs> But it was kind of a weird moment for him for a couple of seconds there. He was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? So here's the deal. You could end up saying like, oh, I'm glad I said something because it turned out I, I thought I saw something that I didn't see. Or it could turn out that God puts you in a position where you help bring something to light that needs to come to light. Of all places within the church of Jesus, it should be a place where appreciation for leaders flourishes because of their hard work. And in the church of Jesus, it should also be a place where accountability most flourishes because it's a high calling. And we all know because of situations that have happened, especially over the last couple of decades, that when sin happens among leaders, it's bad. When cover-ups happen among leaders, it's much, much worse. We all participate in this accountability. So he says, all right, here's what we do. Within the church of Jesus, we honor our leaders through appreciating them. We honor our leaders through accountability to them. But then thirdly, one more thing, Paul is going to say, Timothy, we also honor our leaders through discretion. In other words, through being careful. And the specific thing he's going to talk about being careful with is what people get put into positions of leadership. And I think this applies broadly, but this applies especially to the position of elders. So he says in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And Paul already referred to the laying on of hands in Timothy's case back in chapter 4. And what he's talking about is the idea of a public commissioning of an elder. This is actually something that we do as part of our elder process. When a new elder, and many of you have been here for a while have seen us do this. We did this with Bob Butler just a few months ago. He was brought onto the elder team. We'd gone through all the process. We brought him up front. All the elders came, put their hands on him, and prayed over him, sort of a prayer of public commissioning for him to be in that role. And Paul says, Timothy, don't do that hastily. And he's not just saying, don't do the public prayer hastily. He's saying, don't put somebody in the position of leader, and especially the position of elder, hastily. Use discretion. And look at what he says next here. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Here's almost certainly what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you might be in a situation where you're looking at things and you're saying, gosh, we need elders. In fact, Timothy might have been in that situation. 
There are false teachers around Ephesus, and almost certainly some of those false teachers were formerly elders at the church. And Timothy might have been thinking, all right, we're at, we're at a de- deficit here. We need people in here. We need men in these positions. So I'm looking around, and we got this guy. I mean, he's, he's charismatic, and he's thoughtful, and the people love him, and he seems really nice and personable. Let's just put him in this position. We need more people to do this. And what Paul is saying, Timothy, if you do that flippantly, and it turns out that that elder ends up sinning against the people and wronging them, Timothy, you're going to be partly responsible for that. You're going to share in the sins of others. So, Timothy, be careful. Use discretion. And just as a quick by the way on this, we, we have an elder process um, at this church that we really try to live this out. When somebody wants to be an elder, when we want somebody to be an elder, they go through an application where we ask all kinds of questions about their personal life. We look into how they're giving financially, at least somebody does. We don't get numbers, but we find out, are they really a functioning part of this church family? Are they giving sacrificially? Are they, are they participating in ministry? Do they hold the same beliefs? Can they articulate those beliefs? And then after that, and after the elder interview, where we kind of grill them on all those things, they attend elder meetings for at least four months so we can just see the character of the person and see how they function. Then after that, if the elder is married, we meet with his wife. Kind of want to find out, is there something going on here that we should know about that she might let us in on? Then if that all goes well, we bring the elder up in front of the congregation to say, we're considering this man to be an elder. If you know something we don't know, come and tell us. We're inviting that all the more. We really try to treat this with care before we do it, because we don't want to be in the position where we are sharing in the sins of others and that you would be wronged by someone and that that would happen because of our neglect. We honor our leaders through discretion. And then look at the last thing he says in verse 22. He says to Timothy, keep yourself pure, which I think is the setting for why he gives the clarification that he does in verse 23. Verse 23 is a verse I've been teasing all through this series in 1 Timothy. We finally made it here. It's this weird, seemingly random verse. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So it seems totally random and out of nowhere. Here's why it's not random. This is probably what Paul is doing here. He knows Timothy. And he knows that Timothy, first of all, has some illnesses that would be eased if he would just drink a little bit of wine. And he also knows Timothy, in his quest for purity and the appearance of purity, has decided never to drink any alcohol so that he can't be accused of being a drunk. And Paul has just told Timothy, keep yourself pure. And Paul's probably thinking, I know how Timothy is going to read it. Timothy is going to be thinking, all the more, that's why I shouldn't drink any wine ever. And Paul is saying, Timothy, just have a drink. Timothy, just have a drink, ease your stomach. It's okay. It's a good gift from God. Don't make yourself sick over this. You're not going to be capable of shepherding God's people if you're constantly sick because you're denying yourself something that would help you and is just a good gift from God. So keep yourself pure does not mean you never enjoy the good gifts of God that benefit your life. Now, here's how Paul ends this passage, verses 24 and 25. The sins of some are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Now remember, Paul's talking to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, don't be too quick in putting somebody in the elder position. And he follows it with this, and here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, Timothy, if you allow time, for the most part, somebody's character is going to become evident. Timothy, there might be somebody that you are considering to be an elder 
but you got to rule him out really, really quickly because his sins and his dysfunctions were just obvious. It's like he was carrying them in a backpack when he entered the room. He not only has very obvious sins and dysfunctions in his life, he's posting about those things on social media. You know all about it. You don't have to consider it's an easy one. Some men are like that. Some people's sins are like that. But he says, others aren't quite so obvious. They trail behind them. So, Timothy, if you allow a little bit of time, those things are going to become more obvious, and you'll be spared of being in the position of putting somebody in as a leader that then you have to remove. And the same is true in the flip side in verse 25. He says, in the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. I think this might be Paul's way of saying to Timothy, Timothy, there might be somebody in the church that others want in leadership, and you're looking at this person, and you're saying, I just, I don't see it. I don't see anything. Kind of seems like a wallflower, you know, not, not flashy, not obviously charismatic and gifted in all these ways. I don't really see it. But Timothy, if you give some time and this person's character is borne out and their quiet, godly faithfulness becomes evident, you'll suddenly be in a position where you're not passing them over for the kind of leadership and shepherding that God has called them to. Saying, Timothy, here's the good news. If you allow time, people's character tends to become more evident. Now, this is not only a proper conclusion to this part of the passage, to this part and the whole idea of using discretion, this also speaks to this passage as a whole. Well, you remember earlier, I kind of asked you to keep a pin in something. I asked you just, all right, delay if you're thinking right now, but this means that sometimes guilty people get away with it. Sometimes if an accusation isn't going to be taken seriously or taken as fact unless there's two or three witnesses, that means sometimes there's going to be an elder who gets away with it. And that inevitably, that is true, sadly. But here's what Paul is pointing Timothy to. He's pointing to to the fact not only that if we allow more time, we're going to catch more of these circumstances, but he's also giving us a preview of the fact that there is a final judgment where all these things will be sorted out. Verse 24, some, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. We all, as Christians, end up passing judgment whether somebody should be in leadership or not. Sometimes we're going to get it right if we're careful, if we use discretion, we're going to get it right a lot of the time. Are we going to get it wrong some of the time? We can look at that situation. We can say, you know what, sometimes we're going to be in a position where we put somebody in leadership and that person shouldn't have been in leadership. And sometimes we're going to be, end up in a position where we sort of pass somebody over that God really had raised up to do something significant, but we, we didn't catch it. We're fallible human beings. We missed it. How do we live with the fact that we do that sometimes? How do we live with the fact that sometimes we're going to get it wrong as hard as we're going to try? And does this mean that we shouldn't appreciate our leaders because we might be appreciating somebody that shouldn't be in there? Does this mean that we shouldn't take accusations uh, seriously because sometimes when we do, we'll end up accusing somebody that didn't do something? Does this mean we should back away from all of these principles that Paul is saying? And the answer is no. The answer is that we live in the idea that we appreciate our leaders, we live in the idea that we hold them accountable, and we live in the idea that we use discretion, and we do all this knowing that sometimes we're going to miss it, but God never will. We can get deeply troubled saying, it's not okay that sometimes people get away with it. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in the just God of the universe, does anybody get away with it? Nobody gets away with it. 
Paul says in the book of Galatians, we reap what we sow. Nobody at the end of the day gets away with it. And so you will be filled with anxiety and stress if you look at the world and if you look at the church and say, we got to make sure we never get it wrong. And we're going to do our best to do this. And sometimes we're going to get it wrong. And getting it wrong doesn't mean that justice isn't done. It simply means that justice is delayed. Because there is a God of the universe that sorts all things out in the end. And this whole idea of the church exercising judgment is just a sign of the great hope that we have that one day we'll be in a perfectly just paradise where God has sorted all things out. Nobody gets away with it. By the way, nobody gets away with that. Is that good news? Yeah. Some of you are like, sort of. Um, it's good news that other people don't get away with it, but that becomes incredibly sobering news. That means that I don't get away with it. And, um, and you know, for all of us, we, we all have sinned. We all have, have experienced consequences because of our sins and because of our failures, but we also all know um, we all have sins that we haven't experienced any consequences for. And then we also all have sins that we haven't experienced the full consequences that we could have for. Nobody gets away with it. That's pretty sobering. That, that's even a little bit scary to think of that reality. We could back away with that. Well, we'll say, how do we live in a reality? A minute ago, we were saying, how do we live in the reality that sometimes people get away with it? And then suddenly we find ourselves in a position where we're saying, how do I live in a reality where nobody gets away with it? How do I live in a reality where I don't get away with it? And here's where the gospel comes in and solves our deepest problem. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, we saw the perfect act of justice. In the cross of Jesus Christ, every sin committed by every believer was punished in the sacrifice of Jesus. Perfect justice was done. Justice was present on the cross. You didn't get away with your sin. Jesus was punished in your place. Justice was accomplished in the cross, but you know what else was present in the cross? Mercy. Justice and mercy came together in the cross. We can look at this whole idea and say, man, if we appreciate our leaders, sometimes we're going to be appreciating people that don't deserve appreciation. And that's true. Does that mean you should never appreciate? No, it means that you trust the just God who will sort things out. And if we do this, sometimes it's going to mean that somebody that did something wrong, we can't find the full evidence and they get away with it in some way. How do we live with that reality? We live with that reality because there's a just God. And it also means sometimes there's going to be somebody that we passed over for years and years because they were too quiet or because they weren't speaking up or because they weren't flashy enough. How do we live with that? We live with that because we believe in a God of perfect justice and perfect mercy and that those things met on the cross. Now, we are not given the burden of perfectly sorting out the world, but we are given the responsibility within the church of Jesus of demonstrating that justice and mercy and God's priorities so that the world around us can see it. And when we do that, we not only experience the benefits in our church family, we also experience the benefit of getting to be a sign of heaven to the people around us getting to be a preview of the perfect justice and mercy that reigns when Jesus comes back and ushers us all into paradise. And in fact, part of why I bring this up is because as we prepare for communion, the song that we're going to sing is going to remind us of the ultimate gift that we've been given in Jesus.
If you're going to be helping with communion, you can head to the back right now. In Jesus, we are given the ultimate gift of the forgiveness of sins. We're given the gift of eternal life. We're given the hope that this life is not all that there is. As we think of the glory of what it will be like to experience that perfect paradise that one day we will share, that gives us the strength to be able to live now, not only in the hope that God gives us, but also in the comfort of knowing that the weight of the world is not on our shoulders. We can live in light of what God has called us to do, knowing that in the end, He's going to make up for every mistake that we make along the way. And as we do that, we get to celebrate the justice and mercy of God in Jesus. We get to celebrate that the reason we ultimately won't be condemned is not because we live so rightly, but because Jesus was sacrificed for all of our sins and the mercy of God was poured out. So as we prepare to take communion, as we prepare to take the bread and take the cup that represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, let's take this as an opportunity not only for remembrance and not only for gratitude, but also as a way of catching a glimpse of what it will be like when we finally experience the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you have given us a church family. Thank you for the gifts that you've given us in one another. And Father, we pray that you lead us to be wise and to be appreciative and to be um, suspicious and to be wary appropriately. I pray that you shine the light of Jesus through us. And I pray that you give people a preview of both the justice and mercy of heaven through how we live. And I pray that right now, as we experience the remembrance involved in communion, I pray that you receive glory. And I also pray that we all receive the joy of a preview of what it will be like when one day we are truly united together with you. In Jesus' name, amen.